Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. Today we're going to talk about World War II, superheroes, and the golden age of comics. Comic book sales soared during World War II, and it wasn't just children reading them. Adults were reading them in record numbers, and along with cigarettes and chocolate, comic books were among some of the most coveted items sent to the troops. As part of the material culture of the 1940s, comic books can tell historians a great deal about the people and the times they lived in even if they aren't the most reliable source on the war itself. The story of World War II, as told through Golden Age comic book adventures, is not the story of World War II found in books and archives. Nevertheless, while Superman, Captain America, and the vast pantheon of 1940s superheroes did not actually shape the events of World War II, the comics did influence public perceptions of the war and provided an outlet for national aspirations and fears. Comics then, as they do now, magnified, simplified, and reinvented realities, creating a world of selectively mixed fact and fiction. They created idealized heroes and monstrous villains whose adventures or heinous misdeeds were acted out against the backdrop of a very real war and its very real players. As we will see, even General Douglas MacArthur was tied to the comics. World War II was a war of many different battlefields, with opposing armies battling each other on multiple fronts. But it was not just a military struggle. It was also a war of information, propaganda, and the home front. If victory was to be achieved, soldiers and those on the home front needed to be on the same page and they needed to understand that neither front could be divorced from the other. Comic books played an important role in reinforcing this tie by inspiring readers with the vision of a strong, unified America, and by simplifying the war as the ultimate showdown between good and evil. According to the comic books, World War II was a struggle against depraved monsters, fought by brave, boy-next-door soldiers, assisted by mighty superhuman personifications of truth, justice, and the American way. Before moving on to the superheroes themselves, it's important to understand a little about the role of these characters in the United States prior to World War II. This was not the first time that superheroes were instrumental in influencing the mood or perception of the country. In the 1930s, New Deal programs encouraged Americans to look to a powerful benefactor like the federal government for security. At the time, superheroes like Superman embodied this concept of an all-powerful benefactor, someone who protected innocents from corruption and crime and helped bring order out of chaos. Some historians have seen Superman's popularity during the Great Depression as evidence that the public viewed government as a positive force, at a time when it was expanding exponentially. With the rise of fascism, this association with government faded somewhat, 
and superheroes morphed into avatars of patriotism and democracy, becoming super-citizens who personified ideal American values, not just law and order. Superheroes of this period were part of what is called the Golden Age of Comics, a period from the late 1930s to the late 1940s that was largely dominated by the events of World War II. The strength of the Golden Age superhero was derived from two sources, innate power and, more importantly, from the fact that they represented American values through and through. The best illustration of this is Captain America, who emerged in 1941. Starting off as a fairly unremarkable young man, he turned superhero through the simple injection of a super-soldier serum. Metaphorically, this serum simply amplifies the best qualities of the average American. As a result, Captain America's creation suggests that the ordinary man can be transformed into a superhero through the injection of American ideals. In 1939, World War II was well underway in Europe. The United States was not yet a participant, but American superheroes were far from neutral isolationists. In January of 1940, a superhero named The Shield appeared in Pep Comics and devoted his life to shielding America from its enemies. Later that year, another character named The Blue Bolt was one of the first American superheroes to talk negatively about Hitler and Mussolini. Through his own experiences, readers were exposed to Axis atrocities. At the same time, superheroes like the Submariner, Superman, Wonder Woman, the Human Torch, and Captain America were also fighting the Nazis and thwarting the plots of an unnamed Asian power in the Pacific. Many were reluctant heroes, only joining the struggle against the Axis powers when morally compelled to do so. The Submariner was an Atlantean prince who nursed a hatred of all surface dwellers. With the rise of the Nazis, however, he temporarily put aside this vendetta to help the Allies, because he believed Nazi Germany represented the greatest threat to his oceanic underworld. In February of 1940, almost two years before America entered the war, the Submariner was portrayed attacking German submarines. During the same month, Superman was featured in a story that had him scooping up both Hitler and Stalin and dropping them off at the League of Nations to face justice. Later in the spring of 1941, seven months before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Captain America was portrayed delivering an incredible right hook to Hitler's face in one of the most famous comic book covers of all time. America was not at war, but the comics had already set the stage by identifying the villains. When war came following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the comics were ready. Responding to the attacks, many comic book characters reflected the defiance of a wounded but undefeated nation. Even Uncle Sam appeared in the comics, in tattered red, white, and blue clothes, or with rolled-up sleeves. While his wardrobe was worse for wear, the rips, tears, and rolled-up sleeves demonstrated that beneath his suit, Uncle Sam was a strong, muscular man, galvanized into action, and far from a sleeping giant or a kindly old man. Some superheroes became instruments of vengeance, as illustrated in an April 1942 Captain America comic 
in which a titan-sized Captain America lunges across the Pacific Ocean to punch a fanged Japanese soldier. Other characters represented a more nuanced social critique of the Axis regimes, such as Wonder Woman, who joined the fight against the Nazis after realizing that the United States and its allies represented the last citadel of democracy and women's rights. With the war official, the superheroes went to war alongside regular soldiers, sailors, and marines. Many of their adventures revolved around real people and real places. General Douglas MacArthur himself was featured in several comic books during the war. He even had a 1942 comic book entirely devoted to him. This biographical comic presents an imaginative account of his life from his birth to his escape from Corregidor. In a 1943 all-winners comic, MacArthur is the target of a Japanese assassination attempt. A Japanese prince plots to blow up MacArthur when he arrives in New Guinea to inspect American troops. Unbeknownst to the Americans, the prince has filled a cave under their camp with TNT to be set off when MacArthur arrives. As a testament to MacArthur's stature, the Japanese prince asks for more explosives at one point because he is not sure that a cave packed full of TNT is enough to destroy MacArthur. Fortunately, Captain America discovers the plot and saves the day. Overall, MacArthur's inclusion in the comics reinforced the idea that he was an invaluable player in the Pacific theater and an all-American good guy. It was also an acknowledgement of his success and popularity back home as well as a nod to the accomplishments of his troops in the Pacific Theater. It is unknown if he approved of the use of his image in these comics, but he was probably not unaware of it, and he was probably not opposed to it, especially because publicity like this kept the Pacific War in people's thoughts. Naturally, the Japanese and the Nazis were the main enemies of the World War II superhero. Not all villains were created equal, though. From the very beginning, even before Pearl Harbor, the Nazis outnumbered the Japanese as the main villains. Some scholars speculate that this focus on the Nazis occurred because many of the comic book writers and artists were Jewish, and might have identified Hitler as a threat early on. The feeling may have been mutual. Oddly enough, Hitler's Minister of Propaganda, Josef Goebbels, paid obsessively close attention to the American superheroes. The Nazis clearly feared the influence of comics in America, or like all totalitarian regimes, had very thin skin because Goebbels himself attempted to discredit Superman by officially denouncing him as a Jew. In 1940, the official newspaper of the SS even published an article denouncing the creator of Superman and making fun of Superman. The main attack was directed at the comic in which Superman scooped up Hitler and Stalin and dropped them off at the League of Nations. Rather than defend Hitler, the article poked fun at Superman's costume, stating that the League of Nations probably prohibited people in bathing suits from participating in deliberations. Whatever their motivations for creating American superheroes like Superman, the Nazis made Jewish writers and illustrators feel like patriots. It is therefore not a stretch to imagine that many of these writers did have ideological reasons for creating superheroes who routinely battled the monsters of the Third Reich. 
Giving the Nazi villains names like von Savage or von Brut further helped to illustrate this ideological struggle. In addition to this ideological battle, the prevalence of Nazi villains was probably also a calculated business decision. What comic creators understood was that the quality and popularity of a hero depends in large part on his enemy. Good heroes with great enemies equal high sales, and like they remain today, the Nazis were fantastic villains. Even before many realized the extent of their crimes against humanity, Nazi rallies, uniforms, and other propaganda efforts had an undeniable theatricality that simultaneously repelled and fascinated the American public. This is not to say that the Japanese were ignored. Where the Nazis were often portrayed as a sadistic herd of brutes, blindly following a bumbling, frothing-at-the-mouth Hitler, the Japanese were presented as demonic subhumans. They were depicted as humanoid, not human, skinny with large heads, sometimes wearing loincloths, but always with fangs, claws, or buck teeth, and they were always depicted as treacherous. In multiple stories, Captain America encounters a seemingly genteel, sympathetic Japanese figure only to turn his back and have the Japanese character morph into a vampire and attack. In a basic sense, evil is always supposed to be treacherous. In the decisive final battle, the good guy doesn't let his enemy fall off a cliff. He gives him a chance and offers the bad guy a hand up. When the tables are turned, the bad guy offers no hand up and sadistically stomps on the fingers of the good guy to knock him off the cliff. This scenario is fairly universal and illustrates the brutality of evil and the righteousness of good, a factor that ultimately legitimizes the destruction of the character identified as evil. In the comics, the Nazis and the Japanese were clearly the evil villains, worthy of destruction by the superhero. That being said, there was one major difference between both groups of villains. In the comics, treachery was an axiomatic part of the Japanese identity. Whether they were Japanese or Japanese-American, they were the enemy. In contrast, the Nazis were always differentiated from German-Americans. Comic creators made an effort to include positive German-American characters who demonstrated their loyalty to the United States by rejecting calls to become fifth columnists or spies for Nazi Germany. Representations of the Japanese made no such distinctions. Many scholars believe that these depictions of the Japanese were based on xenophobia and the real-world savagery of the Japanese military. This real-world savagery was best illustrated by the conduct of the Japanese military at Nanking, where hundreds of thousands of Chinese citizens were murdered and or raped when the Japanese took control of the city in 1937. Events like this largely shaped American perceptions of the Japanese enemy, and ultimately, this real-world savagery merged with fantasy in the comics, providing readers with a sense that the Japanese were monsters. The acceptance of this belief in 1940s pop culture may shed some light on why there was no major outcry over the internment of Japanese Americans during the war. Comics were clearly an important part of the World War II era. 
Today they provide us with glimpses of what people were afraid of and what they idealized. During the war, they reminded people to rally around leaders like General MacArthur, to not forget the struggles of the soldiers, sailors, and marines in the field, and to never forget that victory was not just about winning, but about the survival of the free world. In our minds, the eventual defeat of Nazi Germany and Japan seems a foregone conclusion. The comics remind us that victory was not certain, especially in the early years, because Golden Age superheroes and villains could only have been created at a time when people felt that their world was hanging in the balance. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.